Bitcoin is not risky. Fiat is risky. Since 2017, Bitcoin has been Stone Ridge's treasury reserve asset because of my extreme aversion to risk. We run net short USD, which is a fancy way of saying that we net borrow fiat to pay bills and make investments we save in Bitcoin. It would be impossible to overstate the corporate advantages of being on the Bitcoin standard. Since 2017, we've doubled our franchises to 10, more than 10x'd our trading profits, and delivered 25% annualized ROE for our shareholders. Our firm compensation, rent, and total expenses are up 89%, 119%, and 69%, respectively, in fiat, and down 36%, 26% and 43% respectively in Bitcoin. The more fiat we make, the more Bitcoin I buy. You cannot print Bitcoin. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. I want to shoot a reminder out to everyone out there uh, to leave a review for the show if you like what you hear. It is a great, it is an extremely helpful and extremely free way to support this show and bring more attention to Bitcoin Audible. And also, don't forget about AI Unchained. I've got a really cool episode coming this week. I found a, I think my new favorite model, my favorite LLM to run locally on my Mac and it's pretty incredible and I'm doing an episode about it because I think it's a, it's representative of an exciting new direction. It's kind of a new layer to the LLM uh, design. But anyway, it's really interesting. I've been fascinated by it. But anyway, if you call it the introduction clip... Uh, you are going to want to listen to this one. So we did the, I can't remember still which one it is. I think it was the 2021 Stone Ridge Investor Letter. But I've, I've always enjoyed this and uh, I enjoy doing it on the show. And it's not always, it's not like totally about Bitcoin. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a really big section entirely about Bitcoin and Bitcoin is discussed throughout, but it's really about Stone Ridge. It's an investor letter. But there's so many good little there's so many good little sections of this on like how to how to frame your mindset to stay focused and stay grounded, how to think about success and failure, and then they get into some explicit details on what their what it's been like to have a be on a Bitcoin standard to have Bitcoin in their treasury, and it's all just it's just a really great piece. So no more beating around the bush. We are going to get right into it. A quick thank you for our sponsor, and we will jump in. This episode is brought to you by the Cold Card Hardware Wallet because my Bitcoin are safe and accessible and set up with multi-sig because the Cold Card is just magic for that. But if you want a highly secure, trusted hardware wallet, it's going to give you a bunch of those little things that are really kind of incredible in those security edge cases. You have to check out the Cold Card Mark IV. And that is where you're going to send your Bitcoin from Swan 
when you have your auto Bitcoin stack and your auto withdrawal that they will pay the fees for to your cold storage. That is the way to save in Bitcoin, in my opinion. It's automatic. You don't have to think about it. And it just goes to your cold storage. That's why I have been doing it for years. And that's just the beginning. If you want to do your IRA, uh, you want to do a vault, you want to do, uh, you want to hold Bitcoin as your, you want to biz- be a business with a Bitcoin treasury, you want to do employee benefit plans, all of it is at Swan now. Check them out. Link will be right there in the show notes. All right, with that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, The 2023 Stone Ridge Investor Letter, written by Ross Stevens. We are tough on ideas and kind to people. Tom Ginsberg, Professor, University of Chicago, Convocation Address, 2023. It doesn't take much to become a successful artist. All you have to do is dedicate your entire life to it. Banksy. When you think everything is someone else's fault, you will suffer a lot. Dalai Lama. A black belt isn't someone who gets hit. A black belt is someone who gets hit and doesn't care. Anonymous Martial Arts Instructor, C.O. Lynn Alden, 2023. Dear Fellow Investor, Before embarking on the first trans-Antarctic expedition in 1914, Ernest Shackleton, captain of the Endurance, needed to recruit a crew. He settled on the following newspaper advertisement. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. Shackleton chose his men based on character and temperament as much as technical ability. Distributing chores equally among officers, scientists, and seamen, his anti-hierarchical approach to management revolutionary at the time, bred fierce loyalty. Perhaps most distinctive was Shackleton's mindset towards each part of the journey. No matter how arduous, I get to do this. Never, I have to do this. Infectious, energizing, and inspirational, Shackleton's mindset, it turned out, was life-saving. The History of the Endurance, in brief. Departing Britain in August 1914, The Endurance got stuck in Antarctic ice the following January. Shackleton had no choice but to wait and hope for the southern spring to thaw the ice. After nine torturously patient months, the ice finally thawed. Instead of freeing the ship, it unexpectedly crushed the hull. Shackleton ordered abandoned ship, and the crew set up camp on an ice floe, hoping to eventually drift to safety. That didn't happen. Six grueling months later, in April 1916, the ice floe began breaking apart. Jumping quickly into lifeboats, the crew survived a harrowing five-day journey to the nearest landmass, only to find a brutally inhospitable place with virtually no chance of discovery by rescuers. Facing almost certain eventual starvation if they stayed, waited, and hoped, Shackleton took off with a five-man subset of his crew on a makeshift open-boat journey, seeking a known whaling station 720 miles away. A few weeks later, with their destination tantalizingly in sight, the crew encountered a hurricane, which they later learned sunk a 500-ton steamer. Somehow surviving the storm in their tiny craft, the team landed safely on shore the next day. 
Shackleton immediately began hiking to the whaling station, armed with technical equipment that consisted entirely of a single 50-foot rope. He traveled 32 treacherous miles over dangerous mountain terrain in 36 hours to reach his destination. After quickly arranging a rescue vessel, Shackleton raced to recover his stranded endurance crew, arriving in August 1916, 19 months after the ship was initially stuck. All survived. In Shackleton's original recruiting advertisement, he was clear about what each of his men would get to do. Hazardous journey, bitter cold, complete darkness, safe return doubtful. It all went according to plan. I get to. As a businessman and provider for my family, there are many things I have to do. But that's never been what I tell myself. I get to travel 4,000 miles to Europe and learn about aviation reinsurance from the best underwriter in the industry. I get to head downtown and learn about longevity insurance from the man who has sold more of it than anyone on the planet. I get to be part of the investment committee, including for our post-war and contemporary PwC art strategy, democratizing access to a potentially valuable, previously inaccessible hard asset exposure for all Americans. Stone Ridge is not the endurance, but I also get to lock arms with my colleagues when our AUM was cut in half, from some hurricanes and lots of investor redemptions and firm profitability evaporated. I get to evaluate what we missed when a fund launch, with two years of preparatory effort and high hopes, doesn't launch. I get to be executive chairman of NIDIG when almost all of our mining clients default on their loans and the greatest fiat banker of his generation asks the state to shut Bitcoin down. I get to keeps me grounded and grateful. I have to makes me tired and bitter. This year, in numbers incomprehensible to me, Stone Ridge made almost $3 billion in uncorrelated trading profits for our investors across all franchises, with no down months. While everyone at Stone Ridge can be proud of those numbers, perspective is vital. First, nothing we've achieved this year is because of this year. Success and failure are lagging indicators. Mountain climbing disasters are always a series of small, seemingly inconsequential decisions that interact in unexpected ways, compounding exponentially. Success works the same way. It is fashionable these days to say investment outcomes follow a power law. That's technically true and soulless. At Stone Ridge, the compounding we're after is in wisdom and trust in our relationships with each other. Life is much more satisfying when we realize that relationships also follow a power law and invest accordingly. Second, we let the simplicity of our business model be enough. The humility of our questions and the plainness of our actions, our undefended openness, may occasionally seem to border on irresponsible naivety, but we rarely cross that border. And even when we do, We have each other's backs with such ferocity that we never fail to pull ourselves back to safety. Our most sustainable competitive advantage may be our comfort in the simplicity of what we do. The egos of many, especially in our industry, prohibit paths they believe run the risk of external invalidation. That's all that you do? We hear that exact phrase a lot at Stone Ridge. It's always been fine with us. Third, 
Our profits were hyper-diversified because our risk management philosophy is sacrosanct. I will never lose sight of the fact that the very largest numbers, when multiplied by even a single zero, all end up in the same place. Our daily practices hone hyper-awareness to the threat of non-linearities. Rain gives life. Flood takes it. Flood is just non-linear rain. At Stone Ridge, we fear market non-linearities because we know for sure we won't know when they will arrive. Our only defense, and fortunately it's a powerful one, is not a portfolio of uncorrelated businesses. It's a portfolio of unrelated ones, many dependent on physical processes, earthquakes, hurricanes, natural gas coming out of the ground, not financial markets. Fourth, the one financial market I'm okay being heavily exposed to, short, is fiat. Being called a Bitcoin maxi is about as offensive to me as being called a heliocentric maxi. Satoshi helped us this year. All you have to do is dedicate your entire life to it. While University of Chicago professor Eugene Fama's groundbreaking work on market efficiency won him the Nobel Prize, his even greater contribution, in my view, was his work on the principal-agent problem. In exquisite theory, beautiful logic, no equations, Austrian tradition, Fama observed that in corporate finance, ownership and control of a firm are separate. Shareholders own the firm. Employees manage the firm. Fama identified two heuristically addressable but fundamentally unsolvable problems with this setup. A. Incentive alignment and B. Information asymmetry. Thirty years later, my worldview remains unrecovered from Fama's classes and his papers on the principal-agent problem. Employees and owners do not have identical incentives. Thousands of small and large firm decisions attempt to minimize the distance. Separately, as firms grow, it is impossible for all involved to have access to identical information all the time, i.e., information asymmetry. Management faces a continual trade-off in the information content they choose to factor into corporate decisions. If they seek to maximize it, for example, ask all employees to report on everything they are doing all the time, Management conceptually has more information to make better corporate decisions, but the firm minimizes the benefit of employee specialization, impairing firm value. If management minimizes employee input, for example, never distracting employees from their chosen tasks, they maximize the benefit of employee specialization, but at the expense of limiting the information content factored into critical management decisions. There is no right answer. Corporate form, compensation structures, and even internal meeting practices are all examples of implicit outputs of firms confronting the principal-agent problem. In 1980, Fama wrote that agency costs are the central problem in corporate finance. I think he's right. At Stone Ridge, we view agency costs as the central problem in asset management, and therefore the central problem in asset pricing. In the decades ahead, we will see if we are right. Though this be madness, yet there's method in it. Polonius, Hamlet.
on why Stone Ridge chose reinsurance as our first franchise. Every franchise we consider building requires two conditions, each necessary, neither sufficient. First, clearly identifiable principal-agent problems that uniquely partnering with Stone Ridge can help industry leaders minimize. Second, and related, access to sustainably valuable proprietary data, whatever the source. Let's consider two seemingly unrelated industries, catastrophe reinsurance and art, and looking through the lens of the principal-agent problem, perhaps see more similarities than differences. In 2012, before we had any AUM, we hand-collected the prospectuses of every catastrophe bond ever issued and painstakingly built a proprietary database of their characteristics. We learned a lot. Later, we accessed, with permission, the highly proprietary multi-decade catastrophe quota share performance history of globally leading reinsurers, our partners. We learned more. We were interested in two foundational questions. How much does reinsurance return? We had no idea. 2% a year? 20% a year? 30%? Second, what are the characteristics of the cross-section? That is, does selling protection against Florida hurricanes and Japan earthquakes have different expected return? In traditional asset pricing models, catastrophe reinsurance, given its lack of correlation to the market, should not be, quote, priced. That's a fancy way of saying it should not have an expected return above the risk-free rate. In addition, no part of the cross-section should be differently priced. That's a fancy way of saying that Florida and Japan reinsurance risk should have the same excess return, and it should be zero. Our empirical research and subsequent practitioner experience revealed that both theoretical predictions, no risk premium and no cross-sectional differences, were materially, consistently, and globally false. Catastrophe reinsurance has had a highly positive risk premium and a predictably differentiated cross-section, with U.S. risk having far higher expected return than non-U.S. risk. This year, our flagship reinsurance strategy is up 45%, the best performance of its 10-year life. Our cat bond index-like strategy is up 21%, and its greater-than-10-year track record leads the industry. Overall, Stone Ridge made well over $1 billion in reinsurance trading profits this year, on $1.7 billion of catastrophe premium, making Stone Ridge equivalent to about the fourth or fifth largest catastrophe risk-bearing reinsurer in the world. This ranking on premium was pointed out to us about a week ago, but you cannot eat premium. We're focused on the profits. So what's going on with catastrophe reinsurance and with the Stone Ridge approach? Principals invest money on behalf of themselves. Agents invest on behalf of others. Agents control the vast majority of invested wealth. They are the marginal investor, the one that matters. Agents allocate little, if any, of their principal's money to reinsurance, even though over time it has demonstrably better risk-return characteristics than stocks and bonds. Why? Perhaps incentive alignment, or lack thereof. Agents can lose their principal's money with a reinsurance allocation, and in uncomfortably differentiated ways. Consciously or unconsciously, agents avoid what they perceive as unmanageable career risk, even at the expense of higher expected return for their principals. This keeps marginal capital away from reinsurance. 
Turning to the cross-section, given an allocation to reinsurance, we do not observe agents allocating 100% to Florida-only risk, which offers by far the highest expected return in the industry. Instead, they choose a globally diversified reinsurance portfolio with a correspondingly lower expected return. Why? Both allocations have identical, i.e. zero, correlation to the rest of the principal's portfolio, so are almost equally de-risking. However, exposure to only a narrow slice of the reinsurance market with a low but higher probability of left-tail loss uncomfortably amplifies agents' career risk, despite objectively higher expected return for their principals. Career risk equals the function of incentive misalignment or alignment, principals, and agents. A mathematical function that keeps marginal capital away from any narrow reinsurance market slice alone. Next, let's look at the value of proprietary data, an instantiation of information asymmetry. 100 years ago, Munich Re and Swiss Re were the two largest reinsurers. Today, Munich Re and Swiss Re are the two largest reinsurers. The third largest, Hanover Re, self-identifies as the new kid on the block, having started a mere 57 years ago. Reinsurance is very hard. Given this level of leadership longevity, form your own view as to the importance of proprietary data. In ours, we know why the Lindy effect is so powerfully operative in reinsurance. At Stone Ridge, we don't dare underwrite. We underwrite the underwriters. Our foundational approach is to partner, not compete, with the best underwriters in the world. With deliberate practice, high-cadence connectivity, and internal private scorecards that matter deeply to us, we seek to earn and re-earn the right to be the most strategic, risk-sharing partner to each of our cherished underwriting partners. Among many reasons for our invented business model, we view information asymmetry, example, the value of our partner's proprietary data, as competitively unovercomable. Consider that the most recent reinsurer to go public, a competitor to our global leading partners, has underwritten unprofitably every year since its inception nine years ago, effectively financing its ROA, return on assets, at a plus 21% cost of funds. Over the same time period, Hanover Re effectively financed its ROA at negative 3% running. Competition in any field with a 24% disadvantage in annual financing cost is not competition. The newly public reinsurer trades near or below book value. Hanover Re generally trades between 2.5 to 3 times book value. Over the last 25 years, its stock has returned almost the same as Microsoft. Who said reinsurance wasn't interesting? Finally, Remember our flagship reinsurance strategy's 45% return this year? That performance represents a source of both pride and sadness for us. Agents get appropriate criticism for buying high and selling low in all asset classes. Indeed, the well-known buy-high-sell-low driven difference between the returns of equity mutual funds and the returns investors in those funds receive, fund versus investor return, is enormous, 
and consistently enormous over decades, at about 1% per year. This means agents forego about one-quarter of the entire equity risk premium due to discomfort with holding ex-post losing positions and misaligned incentives with principles. The same directional result, and for the same reason, exists in fixed-income funds, and indeed, for every fund category. The corresponding strategy versus investor return for our flagship reinsurance strategy is 4.7% per year. The average investor made 4.7% less per year than our buy-and-hold investors over 10 years, the largest we have ever seen in asset management. As agents on behalf of our investors, that spread is heartbreaking to us. As the largest individual investors in the strategy, as principals, the flagship's massive strategy versus investor return dichotomy is the very source of why reinsurance is so attractive for those who can act like principals. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Ferris Bueller on why art is the most recent Stone Ridge franchise. Fifty years before Stone Ridge began building our catastrophe bond database, a small crew at the University of Chicago founded the Center for Research in Security Prices, or CRISP, C-R-S-P, and painstakingly began building the first-ever database of stock returns. Today, with tens of trillions of dollars in equity mutual funds and ETFs, it may be hard to imagine that in the not-so-long-ago-before-crisp times, no one knew the answer to the basic question, how much do stocks return? 2% a year? 20% a year? 30%? No one knew. Using old newspapers and microfiche, the CRISP team hand-collected stock prices, dividends, stock splits, share counts, and corporate actions starting in the 1920s and going through the early 1960s. Once complete, for the first time ever, CRISP researchers could answer the question, how much do stocks return? Their answer turbocharged the mutual fund industry. Just as critically, CRISP gave researchers their first glimpse into the cross-section, small cap versus large cap, growth versus value, positive versus negative momentum, to more fully explore and understand expected stock returns, turbocharging both academic finance and the financial services industry. Fast forward to today. Inspired by CRISP and our own love of data, at Stone Ridge, we have a proprietary database of art auctions going back to 1900. Roughly 8,000 artists, 1,500 auction houses, 300,000 sales, all painstakingly built and hand-collected. We wanted to know two things. How much does art return? 2% a year? 20% a year? 30%? We had no idea. Second, what about the cross-section? That is, old masters versus impressionist versus modern versus post-war and contemporary. And more granularly, what about Warhol versus Picasso versus Rusha versus Rothko? We did not embark on this journey as fancy art people, though some pieces we own in our art strategy are stirringly magnificent, rather only to make money for our investors and ourselves. We also had a hunch about the art industry and the principal agent problem. 
Art market agents include the major auction houses, such as the Sotheby's and Christie's. They communicate with clarity that their motivation and remuneration is based on selling pictures. It is not their job to know the answer to the question, how much does Picasso return? Nor will they have any deep quantitative sense of fair value for any individual work. They have certainly never built a model of the last 500 Picasso sales, compared like-for-like transactions leveraging AI to objectively dimension similarities among necessarily unique works. Or then thought to Control-C, Control-V apply Case Schiller's groundbreaking real estate valuation methodology to art, so any and every relevant auction result anywhere in the world instantly updates fair values for every Picasso. The agents are excellent at their job. They clearly love it, and they have encyclopedic knowledge of the areas of expertise. We love working with them. However, providing their clients with data-driven valuation model outputs for individual works, or even knowing the historical return of an artist or a genre, are simply not part of their incentives. The closest they can offer would be something like, Picasso's market is strong right now, and even that would be via anecdote, not quantitative rigor. Art market principles, aside from Stone Ridge via our art strategy, are about 1,000 families at an institutional level. One of those families may be decorating a house in Aspen with an empty wall that they believe would benefit from a blue Rothko. They may buy that Rothko because it is blue, not because fair value is 10 million and they paid 12 million. They will generally not know fair value, the amount or even the concept, and may not even care. They certainly do not have access to proprietary data, AI-driven comp evaluation of the latest 50 trades of similar pictures, or unemotional multi-factor pricing models. In art, amidst principles and agents with neither aligned incentives nor symmetric information, the market is worth almost $2 trillion, far larger, for example, than all private infrastructure funds or all private real estate funds combined. And it's liquid. Enough. Taken together, PwC artists trade $1 to $2 billion per month. In addition, for the last 25 years, PwC art has annually returned just south of 12%, almost 5% more per year than the S&P 500. All huge and hugely surprising numbers to many. So what's going on with PwC art and with the Stone Ridge approach? First, our proprietary data reveals a fascinating to us monotonic relationship between vintage and expected return. In short, the newer the artist, the higher the average return. Old masters, say pre-1800, return about inflation. Then each of Impressionist, 1850 to 1900, Modern, 1900 to 1945, and PwC, 1945 onward, sequentially have had roughly 2 to 4% higher average return than their immediately preceding category. On the demand side, academics could equally tell a behavioral or a risk-based story for their empirical results. Behaviorally, central bank money printing and globalization drive rapid billionaire creation and accelerating wealth inequality. In addition, for millennia, the wealthiest always covet cool new stuff. In art today, the new new major category is PwC. There's no reason to believe human nature will reverse anytime soon. 
From a risk-based asset pricing model perspective, PwC Pictures are the small value stocks of art. Less information, more known unknowns, more unknown unknowns, more prone to crashes individually and as a group. Consider that PwC artist Damien Hurst's market not long ago dropped more than 80% for entirely idiosyncratic reasons, and that decades ago, in back-to-back years, the entire market suffered a 63% drawdown. It's therefore rational that owning Hearst or any individual PwC artist or holding the market, as we seek to do in our strategy, requires high-risk premium as compensation. In contrast, old masters will always be old masters. We do not expect to ever learn any new information about da Vinci that would materially impact his market positively or negatively. It's unlikely, for example, that we'll open up the New York Times one day only to discover that da Vinci, too, was cavorting with Jeffrey Epstein and watch his market collapse. Inflation seems about the right return level for old masters. Second, on the supply side, art is the only investable asset class with a finite and predictably decreasing supply. At Stone Ridge, our strategy, quote, collects, i.e. institutionally invests in, about 50 PwC artists. 45% are dead, 46% are older, and, most relevant for our purposes, no longer creating their small subset of iconic institutionally investable pictures. 9% are active, potentially making important new work. Finally, a portion of our strategy's investable universe gets donated to museums each year, taking that supply forever off the market, providing a gentle tailwind for PwC art generally and our strategy specifically. PwC art is also uncorrelated to stocks and bonds and every other asset class we have ever examined. To build some intuition for this powerful empirical result, First, imagine, instead, investing in sports collectibles. Competitive investors for a Mickey Mantle rookie card or a Babe Ruth bat will generally be U.S. males in a relatively narrow berth year range, with buying power subject to the vagaries of U.S. stocks, U.S. interest rates, and U.S. wealth. If the U.S. market crashes, Mantle and Ruth do too. In contrast, wealthy people in every single one of the largest 50 to 100 countries want a Basquiat. Fine art has, and always has had, global demand. That allows us to reframe our business as an attractive and, we believe, persistently mispriced financial derivative, specifically owning a diversified portfolio of the very top PwC artworks. Our strategy already has exposure to roughly 125 works and 50 artists, is like owning a best-of option. Did someone get wealthy today in Brazil, or Australia, or Oklahoma, or France, or... As long as the business cycles of the largest countries remain not perfectly correlated, or as long as enough governments remain fiscally or monetarily irresponsible, thereby requiring larger and larger fiat printing bailouts and acceleration of wealth inequality at the very, very top, PwC art buyers will remain their own economy. Factors that affect the NASDAQ or food prices simply do not affect them. Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Banksy Our art strategy is new, small, and majority firm capital. 
As global debt to GDP soars and money printing accelerates, at Stone Ridge, we want material, long-term exposure to an increasingly diversified portfolio of valuable, finite supply, hard assets. Single-family rentals, SFR, Bitcoin, and now art. We're getting there. Art is just the latest example, which includes exactly 100% of the Stone Ridge franchises, of the first rule of product design at Stone Ridge. We build products we want ourselves. We have a world-class art team, a peerless underwriting and risk-sourcing partner in Masterworks, and clients comfortably underexposed to hard assets and unexposed to art. Commercially, we will try to build this strategy into a big or bigger idea, one brick at a time. In the meantime, as principals, we will keep adding AUM ourselves throughout 2024. When you think everything is someone else's fault, you will suffer a lot. Let's pause right here and thank Swan Bitcoin for bringing this episode to you. Instantly buy Bitcoin up to $10 million with your bank account or bank wires. Recurring purchases, you can invest regularly, set it to daily, weekly, monthly, and it will just run low fees and free withdrawals. That's right, when you withdraw your Bitcoin to self-custody, they will pay the transaction fee. And that's literally just the beginning. If you're a business that's trying to have uh, Bitcoin in your treasury, they have Swan Business and also lets you reward employees with a benefits plan. They have Swan IRA, which is both traditional and Roth. They have Swan Advisor, the Swan Vault for multi-sig with a custodial helping hand. They have Swan Private with concierge service. They are a full financial suite of products for getting you, your family, your retirement, your business allocated safely to Bitcoin. Check them out with my link, swan.com slash guy. That'll be right in the show notes. Again, that's swan.com slash guy, and that'll let them know that I sent you. Details will be in the description. All right, let's jump back in. When you think everything is someone else's fault, you will suffer a lot. At Stone Ridge, if you give an opinion and someone follows it, you must be exposed to its consequences. Our code is symmetry with our investors, having a share of the harm and paying a material financial penalty if something goes wrong, regardless of the cause. In years we lost money in any franchise, nothing necessarily, quote, went wrong, in that successful risk premium investing requires occasional rough years, which must be unpredictable, else there would be no risk premium in the first place. However, in those years, something certainly went wrong in the actual sense, the only sense that matters. We lost money. Total acceptance of responsibility for our investment performance, positive or negative, requires maximal avoidance of industries dependent on political favoritism. That is, when lobbying, subsidies, or state-suppressed interest rates make the industry viable. Stroke of the pen risk when a political or regulatory signature can make a business non-viable overnight, violates our most basic risk management discipline, and affronts our firm culture, we are allergic to the negative energy of redistributive thuggery. The solution from first principles is uncorrelated business, uncorrelated specifically to central bank manipulation of stock and bond markets, Instead of a central bank and a country, imagine a poorly run private company with enormous, unaffordable debt 
announcing to the market that they were going to cut rates. Prices with low fidelity of information content are uninvestable. War games style, the only winning move is not to play. For guidance and a game plan, we turn again to University of Chicago and to Fama, but this time to his Nobel Prize winning work on the Efficient Market Hypothesis, EMH. Fama, 1970, defined three forms of market efficiency, weak, semi-strong, and strong, varying as a function of the information embedded in prices. In weak form market efficiency, prices reflect all publicly available information. Semi-strong form means prices adjust instantly and accurately to new public information. Strong form means prices reflect all public and private information. For the last 50-plus years, asset management strategies, firms, and entire industry segments have commercially succeeded or failed as a function of whether their chosen area of focus corresponded to, in hindsight, conditions of weak, semi-strong, or strong-form market efficiency. There was no escape. At Stone Ridge, we characterize our franchises as weak, semi-strong, or strong-form uncorrelated. In strong form, franchise returns are unrelated, not just uncorrelated, to markets. Earthquakes and hurricanes, reinsurance, volumetric PDP, proven developed producing, well production, natural gas, and lifespan linked income, Q1 2024 launch, are Stone Ridge franchises exhibiting strong form uncorrelation. In semi-strong form uncorrelation, Franchise returns can experience occasional short-term positive market correlation in crashes, but rapid repricing causes medium and long-term uncorrelation. Systematically selling very short-dated, out-of-the-money options to corn, wheat, and cocoa producers, i.e. selling reinsurance-like risk transfer services, and systematically buying one-year duration prime consumer and small business loans, alternative lending, are Stone Ridge franchises that can be correlated over weeks or a few months, but historically and intuitively, not years. The size of their risk premium, combined with their repricing speed, cause those franchises to exhibit semi-strong form uncorrelation. Finally, in weak form uncorrelation, franchise returns have systematic exposure to the inexorability of fiat debasement. Over short to medium intervals, fiat debasement can cause positive correlation. Stocks skyrocket in the early stages of hyperinflations. See, for example, Weimar, Zimbabwe, or Argentina. Fooling holders every time of their increasing wealth before it's gone. In contrast, coveted hard assets with finite supply have not subsequently crashed during hyperinflations. Quite the contrary, driving their medium to long-term correlations to zero. PwC Art, SFR, and Bitcoin are Stone Ridge franchises with high beta to fiat debasement, thereby exhibiting weak form uncorrelation. Not too hot, not too cold. Before embarking on the journey of a new Stone Ridge franchise, we must A. Want the product for ourselves, B. Believe no one has to lose for us, Stone Ridge and our investors, to win. C. Successfully evaluate the role of the principal agent problem in an industry, and D. Empirically and intuitively satisfy ourselves with the franchise's uncorrelation. However, even conditional on all of that, we still have one final, highly strategic, highly consequential decision. Risk selection. 
That is, how much risk are we comfortable taking, and given that, how specifically shall we participate in the industry? Internally, and perhaps too quantitatively, we call our approach the three little bears, not too hot, not too cold. Along the dimensions of risk that we care about, market risk, regulatory risk, and reputational risk, too cold is too safe and not enough expected return. Too hot has high return potential, but too much uncertainty for our taste, particularly around known and unknown unknowns in stressed markets. We seek just right for us. In alternative lending, this means to AAA student loans, too cold, and no subprime or emerging markets, too hot. Prime, U.S. only, is just right. In SFR, this means no homes over $500,000, too cold, or under $150,000, too hot. It also means no low-growth Detroit, too cold, and no boom-bust Seattle, too hot. $250,000 to $400,000 homes in steady San Antonio, for example, are just right. Putting it all together, as a material source of expected firm income, we invest our firm's balance sheet in all Stone Ridge strategies, alternative lending, reinsurance, SFR, energy, art, market insurance, and Bitcoin, each developed based on the foundational principles outlined above. Our empirical research shows that a hypothetical portfolio of all Stone Ridge strategies has produced meaningful return, low volatility, and low correlation to stocks and bonds. However, making actual, not hypothetical, balance sheet investments at scale across all Stone Ridge strategies and adding fiat leverage has earned more. The past five years, our annualized ROE as a firm has been 25%. For us, access to our own strategies equals a powerful reason to be short fiat. A black belt is someone who gets hit and doesn't care. If I was the government, I'd close it down. FDR on gold, April 1933. Well, scratch that. Jamie Dimon on Bitcoin, December 2023. In April 1933, FDR gave Americans less than 30 days to, quote, turn in their gold or face up to 10 years in prison. The price of gold is roughly 100x higher today and legal. Governments are persistently incompetent capital allocators and always impotent, eventually, against the will of their people. In 1933, what caused the leader of the greatest country in the world to fear a yellow inanimate object. Perhaps the same thing that 90 years later causes the greatest banker of his generation to fear digital inanimate blocks created every 10 minutes. The power to create money via printing, central banks, or credit creation, commercial banks, is simply too intoxicating to relinquish for anyone not named Millier. To Bitcoiners, the hysterical whales ban it or close it down are as boringly predictable as they are irrelevant. It's hard to point a gun at an idea or at a passphrase in my mind, especially one I may have forgotten. The close it down crowd should know better. We do not get our rights from the government. The Constitution limits what government can do, not what the people can do. We fought a revolution and founded a new country based on decentralization, free markets, property rights, and individual liberty. 
quasi-anarchistic the revolution was, most of all, against strong central government, the exact kind that would seek to ban something worth far less than 1% of the national wealth and chosen freely by the people. In contrast to Bitcoin, fiat represents government-sanctioned counterfeiting. Printing little pieces of unbacked paper and trying to pass them off as money? Fiat is an economic paradigm. Fiat is an economic paradigm premised on the plunder of time from the unfavored many not directly downstream of the state's monetary spigot. No wonder those in charge love it. Counterfeiting should be illegal, regardless of whether the Xerox machine is government or privately owned. The only monetary difference is the size of the confiscatory audacity. The U.S. Treasury estimates $70 million in counterfeit bills are in circulation. Since 2020, the Federal Reserve has Xeroxed a fresh, crisp $6 trillion. If I buy Bitcoin, are you buying air? No underlying asset backs it up. It's simply a matter of belief. Elizabeth Warren, 2023. Bitcoin's security is enforced by far more power than most entire countries produce. That's not a matter of belief. Buying Bitcoin is buying what Bitcoin is backed by, an almost incomprehensibly vast amount of stored energy in its blockchain, more than a decade of 24-7 decentralized proof-of-belief scratch work, not air. The free market only buys power for what it finds valuable. Right now, that's about $811 billion of Bitcoin. Like an innocently naive six-year-old on Christmas morning, our nation's first federal crypto law from FinCEN in 2013 called Bitcoin virtual and Santa, excuse me, fiat real. Reality doesn't care if you believe in it. Fiat is credit. Bitcoin is money. When FinCEN gets older, they'll figure it out. In a battle between the claws of the state and the invisible hand of the market, we can forgive the confused who believe they're in power. The state excels at being certain. Certainty is different than truth. Once, the state said the sun revolved around the earth. Today, Bitcoin is air. I wonder if wet streets cause rain. Everything that can be invented has been invented. Charles Dwell, chairman of the U.S. Patent Office, 1899. Oh, scratch that. We don't need more digital currency. Gary Gensler, chairman of the SEC 2023, questioning why the U.S. needs Bitcoin. Government officials wield tremendous power. They should be respectful and restrained. The ethics of the job demand personal we-don't-need-like opinions to be kept to themselves and never influence their official actions. The propulsive tentacles of the SEC chairman's extra-legal agenda, yes, Bitcoin, but also share buybacks, corporate disclosure, private markets, securitization, security lending, predictive data analytics, much more, have ceaselessly sought expansion beyond legitimate boundaries. Taken together, in the public words of a heroic fellow commissioner, his agenda reflects a, quote, loss of faith that investors can think for themselves. We can. Fortunately, we live in a constitutional democracy with an ingenious system of checks and balances on government power. They are working beautifully. In the past year, courts have repeatedly defeated the chairman's agenda. Quote, 
unlike regulatory treatment of like products, is unlawful. Treating similarly situated parties differently is at the core of unfair discrimination. You cannot have it both ways. It is illogical for the rule simultaneously to accept and to reject the reasoning underlying the benefit. Your actions are contrary to constitutional right, arbitrary and capricious, and without observance of procedure required by law. Note arbitrary and capricious. Legally means without consideration or in disregard of facts or law. Black's Law Dictionary. The chairman's personal opinions regarding what the entire country needs or does not need, including Bitcoin, do not matter. More SEC defeats are likely. All will be okay. In the meantime, black belts and Bitcoin don't care. Bitcoin is not risky. Fiat is risky. Over the last one, three, five, and ten years, long-term fiat savings, 20-year-plus U.S. Treasuries Index, has cumulatively returned 2%, negative 33%, negative 8%, and 24%, respectively. Over the same time periods, long-term non-fiat savings, Bitcoin, has cumulatively returned 156%, 46%, 1,052% and 5,569%, respectively. Which one is risky? Which one is backed by air? Which one should we close it down? Which is the one we don't need? Since 2017, Bitcoin has been Stone Ridge's treasury reserve asset because of my extreme aversion to risk. We run net short USD, which is a fancy way of saying we net borrow fiat to pay bills and make investments. We save in Bitcoin. It would be impossible to overstate the corporate advantages of being on the Bitcoin standard. Since 2017, we doubled our franchises to 10, more than 10x'd our trading profits, and delivered 25% annualized ROE for our shareholders. Our firm compensation, rent, and total expenses are up 89%, 119% and 69% respectively in fiat and down 36%, 26%, and 43% respectively in Bitcoin. The more fiat we make, the more Bitcoin I buy. You cannot print Bitcoin. The first rule of Bitcoin is you do not talk about price. Tyler Durden, Fight Club, instructing new Bitcoiners that we do not talk about the Bitcoin price. In a world of state money increasingly debased, censored, and surveilled, Bitcoin represents optimism, fairness, justice, truth, and beauty. As the people's money, Bitcoin is unstoppable by borders, devaluation, censorship, or mass surveillance. Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age, once wrote a very wise man. Please reread that sentence a few times. Privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. Better yet, read the whole essay. Increase your resolution on why church, scratch, money, and state must be separate, and the reason for the first rule of Bitcoin then becomes obvious. I don't mind if you come to Bitcoin for the price. I just hope you stay for the principles. Tough on ideas, kind to people. What makes a great firm? The intense, strenuous, and constant intellectual activity of the place, 
in which every colleague thinks for themselves and has agency to execute their areas of personal responsibility. When you walk around, the air is electric. At Stone Ridge, we recruit for wisdom-loving wonder, a necessarily joint activity. One colleague may put forth ideas and another may criticize, but there must be an attempt to think creatively together, whether within or across the permeable boundaries of our franchises. Excellence in creativity requires courage, sympathy, goodwill, and trust. In a word, belonging. Creativity is impossible without intellectual friendship. When it comes to expertise, we never pretend we have it when we do not, but we are equally unafraid of its absence. I view my main responsibility as helping to create conditions that facilitate uncluttered thinking, rapid learning, and intellectual hunger, not fear, that we do not know what we do not know. In every field, there have been debates in which intelligent, well-meaning people took positions that, with the benefit of hindsight, were laughable. At Stone Ridge, we have been wrong before, and we will be wrong again. The ideas must be the authorities, not the people. Merit is our oxygen. We scrupulously insist that the most demanding recruiting criteria must always remain non-negotiable. I could not care less how anyone on our team worships, votes, or looks. They just have to be awesome. Quote, Retention or promotion must eschew convenience and friendship. No decision should permit consideration of the avoidance of hardship which might confront the candidate if a favorable decision is not made. Favorable decisions should not be rendered on the grounds that evidence is not sufficient for a negative or positive estimate of future accomplishments. The insufficiency of such evidence is indicative of the candidate's insufficient productivity. Care must be taken to avoid regard for the rights of seniority in promotion. Consideration should be given only to quality of performance, and age should be disregarded. That passage is from the Criteria of Academic Appointment, the University of Chicago Faculty Committee, from 1970, but might as well be from the non-existent Stone Ridge Recruiting and Retention Manual today. I get to part two. We have never had and never will have an HR department. I prefer common sense. I'm also convinced no HR is a big part of why we've achieved the statistic I care most about and will never take for granted. In 2023, under 1% voluntary turnover. Powered by genuine idealism and unbounded optimism, I've yet to find the upper limit in my estimate of the potential of the people I get to work with. No HR frees us to dream about how well we can treat each other and to have off-market policies. We don't meter vacation and encourage a lot of it. We offer unlimited maternity and paternity leave and strongly encourage people to take lots of time off to enjoy that magical time with their family. We pay for self-improvement programs any employees want to enroll in, and annually we do a detailed competitive analysis to make sure we have what we believe to be industry-best travel and expense policies. We simply expect our team to respect the firm's generosity when they travel. They do. Until earlier this year, my personal favorite policy was our bereavement policy. If a family member of any employee passes, our team of administrative assistants collectively spring into action to help with the travel logistics, if any, for the employee and anyone in their immediate family to attend the funeral. 
The firm also insists on paying for all travel and lodging expenses for all family attendees. Consider a non-executive Stone Ridge employee that grew up in a faraway war-torn country with a large immediate family raised solely by his grandmother who has just passed. Our policy could be, and has been, the difference between he and his entire family being able to pay their final respects in person or having to pick and choose who gets to go. While, of course, not the reason for the policy, the private letters I've received from impacted family members afterwards are among my most treasured possessions. Earlier this year, my favorite policy changed. At a firm happy hour in the spring, I overheard a star on our operations team discussing the cost of college with a group of colleagues. A new dad with two kids, five and three. He said, I'd love for my kids to go where I went to college, but it now costs $80,000 a year. I can't even imagine what it will cost when it's time for my kids to go. My wife and I are already discussing that we won't be able to afford it. I walked home that evening ruminating on what I overheard and had an idea. What if, I thought. I molded the idea in my head for a few months, mentioning it only to my wife, my assistant, and one colleague. They each were totally shocked, totally supportive, and asked the same question. Can you afford it? I was pretty sure we could, but I was absolutely sure that if I did a detailed analysis, the exercise would ruin it for me, and I wouldn't go forward. At the next firm-wide meeting after I was ready, I briefly told the story of the happy hour conversation I overheard and my subsequent ruminations. I then gathered myself, took a deep breath, and announced the following to my colleagues. For anyone who works at Stone Ridge for at least 10 years, the firm will pay for your kid's college. I continued, emotions now rising in the room as my colleagues' incredulity turned to life-changing astonishment. I have not run a detailed analysis about whether we can afford this, but I think that we can. I would just ask all of us to commit to each other that if this policy ever becomes challenging for the firm to pay for, we can all agree to just work harder. Screams, cheers, and tears. I left the room emotionally overcome with my assistant's guiding arm around my shoulder. I couldn't stop thinking. I get to do this. Our Partnership As we enter 2024, our tanks are filled with energy, gratitude, and inspiration. We innovate to prepare for an uncertain future in pursuit of our mission, financial security for all. Stone Ridge is most proud of the 50-50 partnership that we have with you, our investors. We are on the path together. You contribute the capital necessary to propel and sustain groundbreaking product development. We contribute our collective career's worth of experience in sourcing, structuring, execution, and risk management. Together, it works. In that spirit, I offer my deepest gratitude to you for sharing responsibility for your wealth with us this year. We look forward to serving you again in 2024. Warmly, Ross L. Stevens, Founder and CEO. One of the best features about the cold card hardware wallet, to me, granted, the probably one of the best and most popular is the fact that you can air gap it from its entirety, from key creation to signing and creating transactions and receiving. Doesn't matter what it is, you can have the entire thing completely air gapped. It's a highly secure device with tons of features around this, but I'm a fan of NFC and I am willing to accept that security trade-off for the funds that I keep on my phone because the 
insecurity, the lack of security that you get in a mobile wallet typically. It is night and day to be able to turn that into a simple multi-sig setup that both helps protect me if I lose my phone or I lose one of my wallets or cold cards while I'm traveling, or more likely the tap signer because that's what I'm using when I travel. So I'm still able to recover it, but I'm also not vulnerable to my device. Nobody can steal my phone and send out the funds, and nobody can hack into the wallet and get my funds because my keys are separate. They're on my cold card and my tap signer. Both of these are CoinKite devices, which I highly recommend. They are a trusted brand. They've been around for the longest, I think, in the Bitcoin hardware wallet space, and they just make awesome tools. As someone who has tried practically every hardware wallet, I'm telling you, you're going to love your cold card. Grab one. You can get 9% off with my code, BitcoinAudible. Go to the link that's right there in the show notes. It's bitcoinaudible.com slash cold card. But you don't have to remember it because the description right there has it just for you. So you can click on it whenever you get the itch to go grab yourself a cold card. Check them out. So we read the uh, last year's or maybe it was the 2021 Stone Ridge letter. I can't remember if I've read all of them or if... Uh, I've just read one in like the last few years, but uh, I always, I always just really enjoy it. One, because it's a really interesting perspective for kind of their business strategy or how they think about building a company. And I think it's incredibly well aligned with the sort of Bitcoin ethos, with the the principle of a long-term strategy of long-term thinking and long-term investment and thinking about building relationships and building something that will last and is sustainable not chasing as much leverage as you can possibly get and you know chasing the highest profit for the shortest span of time but looking for that which is stable and predictable and that's just always impressed me about the company uh i like ross a lot i wish he was he wasn't such an introvert so that i could uh actually get to see and speak with him more often but i've gotten to meet him a couple of times and he's a really great guy and not only was this piece, uh, he said a couple of really great points and really interesting things on Bitcoin that I really wanted to share. And I could have just made it a guy's take and kind of talked around it. But there's also, there was also some like really good stuff about A, how to think about business strategy, how to think about like building a company and stuff, but also the mindset. I love, I love stuff that talks about like mindset and mental framing because I think it's so unbelievably important how you frame things when you talk to other people and how you frame things in your own mind really denote they they designate the perspective that you're forcing yourself into when you take those actions or when you make those decisions and they can literally be beneficial and and incredibly positive or they can be poisonous and so one of the things I've, I loved probably the most out of the investor letter here is, is the I get to mindset. Like I get to sit down and read something like this and blabber about it on the show because it's interesting to you guys and you're not going to be able to, you, you, most people don't have time to sit down and read it. It's the only way that most people can consume a ton of the content that they consume myself included. I literally have stopped reading things outside of the show, basically, because I don't have the time. I try. I am always looking for an audiobook. 
I've gotten to a point where almost everything that I read now, I try to think about it like, how could I maybe record some of this? And I mean, that's not, it's not entirely true that I don't read it outside of the show at all. I, mean, I have to for like a lot of different reasons, but nonetheless, I do it far less than I used to because so much of it is around the show. And I have probably like, I don't even know, 500 audiobooks in my Audible and then a ton in my book player app. And just, uh, just, I have, I, I consume a massive amount of audio. But that I get to mindset is that I get to do this. I, get, I don't have to do another episode. I get to do another episode. I don't have to take care of my son. I get to take care of my son. And something else about that mindset too makes you stop to think about how few opportunities you have for some things. My, my son has made that like way, way clearer to me because of how unbelievably fast he grows up. Like literally within like three to four weeks, like he, he's just completely different in some way. You know, I think when I, I look back as like a kid and you think about like, oh, you're going to have a kid and you're going to be doing baths in the sink because they're so small and all this stuff that you just think of it like there's this whole era in which this happens. But then like when it actually occurs, it's like four weeks, you know, it just it, it goes by so fast. and You're like, wait, we're not we only did that a handful of times. And there are so many things that even when they're challenging like you realize that you're not even going to get the opportunity to do this many times and just in all sorts of things. Like I remember when Roxy, our, our dog, was getting old um, and she was getting really, really rough. She couldn't control her bathroom or anything. And she would, uh, she would get up. We had mats down at the foot of the bed, like off the bed. Um. And uh, she was, God, was she 19 years old, 18, 18 or 19? But she would wake up in the middle of the night, and if I didn't wake up, she would just crap everywhere. And then she'd pee and walk around in it, and it was just a mess. And I'd be like, be like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd have to get up. And I remember thinking there were a couple of times where... um like it was really bad and it was just all over the floor and I just like you know used 10 towels and just you know spent the next 30 to 40 minutes spraying and wiping stuff up and I took her outside and I was so mad and she couldn't take the stairs anymore either so I would have to I'd have to carry her out there and I remember I remember at some point it just hit me that I was waking up in the middle of the night to you know spend some time with Roxy and at some point, I wasn't going to get to carry her outside every night. Like, she'd gotten pretty bad a couple of times before, and she had always come back. And I think this one had lasted just long enough that it hit me that this might be how it is for the rest of the time that I have with her. And even though I wasn't thinking about it like this at the time, I remember thinking that I get to carry her outside. <laughs> And, uh, it was funny though, like, I, I mean, I would still get like frustrated just cause like I wake up, you know, in the middle of the night and I got like a huge mess and like, I'd just be agitated just to have woken up in kind of a, a chaos. But, uh, I remember I wasn't, I wasn't really mad anymore. Every time that little mental shift would turn right back on, I would remember that 
that was the reality of the situation. And when I look at this a year from now, that's what I'm going to think. <clears throat> but um, the interesting thing is just that that just that slight change in perspective can completely alter the experience. And I thought Ross's quote on this, it says, I get to keeps me grounded and grateful. I have to makes me tired and bitter. Just thought that was a really, really good line. Then another thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently, um, especially in trying to look back on the success of the show and you know, how I got to where I was and like what those key things, what were the decisions, what were the things that kind of fell in place that have gotten me here so that I can think about the structure and how to change what I'm doing in order to take on the new projects that I'm doing and hopefully expand and make the show and AI Unchained better. But it's funny how, like how incremental, there's a really great book that I've been reading that I just read multiple times recently. And I think I've mentioned this on the show. Um, called Atomic Habits. And I really want to recommend that one again because it's basically a way to attack changing your behavior, how to kind of structurally think about the concept of a habit and how to alter it. And then also another really, really critical difference in framing for how to think about success and how to think about what you should be like where to put your target, essentially. Rather than some distant goal, put it right in front of you. And rather than thinking, I'm going to double this, I'm going to double that, is just look right now, what can you do 1% better? And then stack as many of those as you can possibly do. And this quote that Ross has in the, the investor letter, it says, quote, nothing we've achieved this year is because of this year. Success and failure are lagging indicators. I thought that was a really uh, poignant way to say that, that nothing we achieved this year is because of this year. And that if I'm thinking about, you know, how to bring in more capital or how to allocate something, like if I'm thinking about the right now, as far as whether or not I have success, if I, you know, work for a week, I work for a month and then start feeling burnout on this new project or start feeling like, you know, this new thing I'm doing isn't paying any you know, any returns and I'm just bringing on more work? How do I judge what is and isn't working? And when I get to those points where I do feel like I want to quit or where the initial excitement of the idea or the project starts to die down, uh, whether it's, you know, three months, six months, a year in, like that's where most projects die is in that zone of getting through the novelty when the novelty wears off. Are you still there? Are you still building that thing? Are you still uh, making sure that when it's boring that you keep, you keep moving forward? Because it's after breaking through that that you've, you've pushed on these things, you've made this progress long enough that it starts to really pay back returns. And it's just how do I make it 1% better? And how do I make sure that I just show up? Um, Again, that's t Atomic Habits. Uh, it's, it's a really good book. I've listened to it a couple of times now. And on that note, actually, um, one thing that I've been trying to do personally in trying to make the things that I do 1%, 2% better wherever I can 
is, um, and this is kind of using two of the principles laid out in the Atomic Habits book, but I was thinking about just how much time there is in the day. And, you know, you can say it's 12 hours if you're working pretty much the whole day, but with a kid, food, like all the distractions, you really only end up with about eight hours of really being able to solidly dedicate, or at least I do, because we mostly can't do anything after Rad goes to sleep and he goes to sleep at like seven. So I can basically get some paperwork sort of stuff done on my bed. But I know one of the things that really eats into my time is getting distracted, is like going to sort something. Like I'm, all, I'm constantly having to source stuff from Twitter and from Noster. And, you know, that's where I go read through articles and stuff. And it's very very often that after I read through an article, I'll go trying to find the author's Twitter account or something, and then I'll just be on Twitter. And I, and I know I'll just end up on Twitter for 10 or 15 minutes at least. It's so unbelievably good at like just like grabbing you, and I definitely have that sort of like motion memory addiction to going back to it. And I've done much better at managing it the more and more time goes on, but I kind of, it's like, it's like I relapse, you know, I go through periods again where it's like, it's come back into my, my normal mode. But one thing I was thinking about the other day is that I have this little, this, this really cool little cube timer that, uh, I'm pretty sure I just got off of Amazon or something, but it's just got like a, uh, like minutes on each face, like five minutes, 15 minutes, 30, 60 um, and I just lay it down on whatever timer I want it to run. And it basically, it will let me block out like basically how I'm using my time. And I can actually know how much time is spent because going back to the first point about like the kind of, I get to mindset is that how you think about things and how you recognize what is happening. Cause most of the problem with getting distracted is that you don't realize you're distracted. The problem isn't that you just purposefully you know sabotage yourself and go get lost on twitter or whatever it is that you're getting locked up in it's usually that you just don't know that that occurred so being aware of it is often enough to stop it or hit at least push back against a very large majority of where it kind of gets away from you and so i've been doing this thing i, I was thinking about like let's say if i do get a really like complete eight hours to focus entirely on what I want to focus on um, is that that's 32 blocks of 15 minutes, just 32. So every time I get distracted for, let's say, 15 minutes, well, that means I've burned 3% of the time that I have available every single time I get distracted. And if I do that 10 times in a day, that's a third of the entire day. And that also assumes that I don't get roped up into thinking about some stupid crap that was happening on Twitter, which might ruin the next hour because I work on something that I shouldn't work on because I'm just, I just can't stop thinking about this stupid video I saw or that what this idiot said. And there was somebody wrong on the internet and I got to go fix it. So anyway, that's just a little thing of something I'm like my timer's running right now and I'm trying to budget or trying to make better sense of how much time how many blocks each of these little tasks and stuff as I you know work on the show are actually taking me but the reason I like the cube 
particularly, I tried to do this with uh, like one of my organizers and managers, like with Obsidian and ClickUp and stuff, but it just does not work for me. Like it only works if I literally put it in front of me. That's another thing that Atomic Habits talks about is uh, uh, the idea of basically putting stuff in your way. Like I have a problem with like forgetting to and or never really getting to working out. Like it's just kind of low on my priority list. And so one thing that I did to just kind of correct that is I literally just have 45-pound dumbbells sitting in front of the door when I come down here into the basement. And then I, I just have to pick it up and I have to take it to the back corner of the place and sit it down in there like little holders every time I do anything. And a lot of times I'll do like lunches or something. But then every single time we don't, we don't have a bathroom down here. It's just a big concrete basement. It's basically a garage. So I'm constantly having to go upstairs to eat, go upstairs to use the bathroom, you know, whatever it is. And then I will go get the, I'll go get the dumbbells and I'll take them back and I'll sit them in front of the door. And it actually kind of works. Uh, like the first like couple weeks, I was actually kind of sore. I had to do it like 30 times a day or something. But that's why the cube specifically uh, fits uh, my my flow is because I can just, I just pick it up. I just pick it up and like flip it to a side. And it this actually helps because I usually fidget a lot with my hands anyway. Anyway, Jesus, that was a long rant, uh, a long uh, tangent on just the the notion of understanding that, you know, when you have success or when you fail, don't look at what you were just immediately doing, what, what happened last week, what happened last month, because what we achieved, as quote, what we achieved, or nothing we achieved this year is because of this year. And... One of the most powerful things that you can do, in fact, you think about it, it's all mindset. There's literally nothing but mindset. Your mind creates your relationship with everything. So if you're not looking for a way to change your mindset, then you're, you're not seeing what is inevitably 80% of the solution. And I just loved that framing from Ross is the I get to. I get to keeps me grounded and grateful. I have to makes me tired and bitter. Really good quote. All right, let's see what else we got here. Man, I actually saved a lot of other stuff, but this one, I want to make sure I get to this one. We're already like an hour and 20 minutes into this. So for everybody who knows, uh, uh, Stone Ridge has been using Bitcoin in their treasury since like 2017. And then they've also created Nidig and now Wolf. And Wolf is the thing that's like, I don't even remember how much capital they raised. And they've got... um. Uh, they call it a wolf in sheep's clothing and or, or the kind of cool pitch or whatever was that, you know, you have a wolf in sheep's clothing. You tried to hide what you're doing. And he said, no, this is a wolf in wolf's clothing. We are trying to replace the fiat system with a Bitcoin system. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty good. I like that. But they're like essentially, I think, funding and uh, like sponsoring, like bringing out uh, lightning developers and lightning and Bitcoin related projects. And you can submit ideas and things that you want to build to them. And literally they, they will just help make it happen if you get selected. In fact, for all the builders out there, if you don't know about Wolf, I have that link in the show notes. If you've got like a really awesome project that, you know, you kind of have concrete worked out in your mind where you want to take it and you're looking for funding to help build the thing and you really want to see that come to fruition, they are probably a really good one to look into. And I actually know of another fund that I think will be coming in like February, maybe? February or March of this year. 
which will all be capital dedicated to building lightning-based, Bitcoin-based, and decentralized, uh, like kind of peer-to-peer applications and network tools and protocols and that sort of thing. It'll be really interesting, actually. This is this is going to be like I feel like the the capital has started has started to really get together to uh, build out entirely in the Bitcoin stack. Like it's been really really hard for a long time to separate those, but I feel like the bear market and has really done a remarkable job of cementing the Bitcoin only companies from the previous from the end of the previous cycle. So it'll be really interesting. I think we might see a another surge in that area of the markets and ecosystem. I don't know. We'll see, but it feels like it. But this quote, this quote right here, I loved. And it's kind of crazy to think about it in this, in this context. It says, It would be impossible to overstate the corporate advantages of being on the Bitcoin standard. Since 2017, we've doubled our franchises to 10 more than 10x our trading profits, and delivered 25% annualized ROE for our shareholders. Our firm compensation, rent, and total expenses are up 89%, 119%, and 69% respectively in fiat, and down 36%, 26%, and 43% respectively in Bitcoin. The more fiat we make, the more Bitcoin I buy, you cannot print Bitcoin. Damn. It is kind of crazy when you put it just that flatly. You, you know, people talk about how like it's hard to work on a Bitcoin standard. The price fluctuates so much. But you know, if you think about it, if you literally live within your means, do any financing in dollars and always use your profits to, to invest in Bitcoin and you can manage through a zone where the Bitcoin price is down for six months, a year, you would be an absolute idiot not to be on a Bitcoin standard. In fact, even if you were having trouble and you were going to have bigger expenses during the bear market, you would still be better to be on a Bitcoin standard. The returns on fiat are awful. They're absolute garbage. You are getting demolished. Compensation, rent, and total expenses are up 89%, 119%, and 69% since 2017. That's six years. And those costs are down 36%, 26%, and 43% respectively in Bitcoin. Those are not small gaps. That's crazy. And then going back to something he hit just earlier than this. Where is this sucker? Okay, here it is. Bitcoin is not risky. Fiat is risky. Over the last one, three, five, and 10 years, long-term fiat savings, 20 plus year US treasuries index, has cumulatively returned 2%, negative 33%, negative 8%, and 24% respectively. Over the same time periods, Long-term non-fiat savings Bitcoin has cumulatively returned 156%, 46%, 1,052%, and 5,569%, respectively. Which one is risky? Which one is, quote, backed by air? Which one should we close it down? 
Which one is the one we quote, don't need? Since 2017, Bitcoin has been Stone Ridge's treasury reserve asset because of my extreme aversion to risk. That whole section, that just, that entire section is just crazy to think about. Just having it, just simple, put the numbers in front of you. This is what happened if you were using fiat. This is what happened to us because we were using Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is our reserve as a business. And this is just going to keep happening. This is why the Lindy effect is so powerful. You just get to a point where, like, over what time period are we talking about? That this is not secure, this is going to blow up. And what is fiat doing during that time? You know, on a long enough... If you get to the point where it's like, obviously, Bitcoin's going to be around in 15 years, what do you have to do when you, like, like, how do you even begin to think about how bad the dollar prices are going to be in 15 years? Look back. There hasn't been a 15-year period where the dollar was up even slightly since 1913, since we created the Federal Reserve. It's generally slowly down with a handful of episodes of really bad down. Anyway, I just thought that that whole section was just crazy. All right, one last thing before we get out of here um, is one of the things, actually, this is in the same section, I think. It says, in a world of state money increasingly debased, censored, and surveilled, Bitcoin represents optimism, fairness, justice, truth, and beauty. As the people's money, Bitcoin is unstoppable by borders, devaluation, censorship, or mass surveillance. Quote, privacy is necessary for an open society in the electronic age. That is a quote from the Cypherpunk Manifesto by Eric Hughes. And it is a phenomenal piece. It is a, it's a piece of the Cypherpunk history, and it is so much about the why and the origins of the philosophy of Bitcoin and everything that led to it and the you know, the, the cypherpunk mailing list and the cryptography mailing list. And I highly recommend going down the cypherpunk rabbit hole and understanding the philosophy that this all came from. That it was about political action, not protesting and not bitching and, you know, begging for the next guy to come in and save us, but to actually build the solutions that make the need for them obsolete. Cypherpunks write code. If you do not know that history, if you haven't gone down that rabbit hole, I highly recommend it. Uh, we have covered it a ton of the cypherpunk and Bitcoin prehistory on this show. And I will have a link to the Bitcoin Audible read of a cypherpunk's manifesto. So with that, we will close this one out here. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that I got that in there and didn't forget to mention it to you guys because it's, it's a phenomenal piece for those who haven't heard it. Thank you so much to Ross Stevens, to uh, Stone Ridge for uh, always having a fascinating investor letter. I don't know. That's, that's cool. I've, I really enjoy reading those. And in addition, uh, a huge thank you to CoinKite and Swan.com. Uh, Swan.com slash guy is my special link. And Bitcoin Audible is the discount code you will get over at CoinKite.com when you're picking up your cold card hardware wallet. Thank you all so much. Details, links to uh, all the things that I mentioned uh, will be right there in the show notes. And I will catch you all on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys.
there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. Albert Einstein